0: Am I coming through? Am I coming through? Hello, hello, hello. Hey, hello. Okay. Alright, we're going to make a stop. Have a Bible, if you have a Bible with you, could I like turn to the book of Acts in the Bible? If you just anyone's, Andy's is this yours, Do you want this? and the book of Acts. In case you're not familiar with your Bible, it's, it's kind of in the last sort of quarter of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts. And we'll just read chapter 2 from verse 42. We started looking at this last week. We'll look at it again next week. And then that will be like a kind of a mini-series for the end of the year. Acts 2.42 And they, that's the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favour with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved Now last week you remember we focused in on verse forty two, which says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And we focused on that first bit of the apostles' teaching. And we asked the question, Well, what does that mean today? How do you, you know, how do you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching? It's through it's devoting yourself to the scripture. Old and New Testament. And we looked at meditating on scripture and how that works and how that differs from other kinds of meditation. And we just looked at all these things and that's available online if you haven't heard that. We're going to take the second element of that sentence today, which is fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. I want to speak about how, as a church, we devote ourselves to one another. That's what the word fellowship means. It just means, to to fellowship with someone means to partner with someone, means to participate with someone. And so what we see there is is that they they were devoted to one another. What does that look like? Um... Now, the idea behind doing this mini-series is really getting back to the basics of what the early church was like and trying to say, how can we emulate that? How can we look like that? Um, we want to make sure that we don't say we're something and actually, when you get under the surface and scrape away the, the appearance, that it's something different, but that it is what it says it is all the way through. It's ever so important for the purpose of glorifying God, integrity and all these other things. Is, is, this, the, is this the battery or is it where I'm standing? Anyone with any PA experience, got any ideas what this could be? Battery, if so, I'll swap mics, or where I'm standing. You think it's where I'm standing? James. Rock and roll roll move there. Uh, I'm sorry on the internet you missed that. It was pretty impressive. Um, Right. uh, So we're going to look at today what it means to be devoted to the fellowship. Now, the word devote means to earnestly adhere to. It means to, um, it's a strong word. It's more than just something you enjoy doing. It's something that you give yourself to. That's what we see is meant here by devotion. There was a sense of continual adhering to one another and to spending time with one another. Now, it's vital for three main reasons. Number one, the church is described in the Bible as the body of Christ. Now imagine for a moment the horrific implications if those who are supposed to be Christ's body are actually full of strife, divisions, hostilities, um, niggles, etc. What that means is is that you've really got Christ's body that is kind of like a broken arm there, a torn ligament here, that's really what you've got in in imagery-wise. And so you've got really this idea of someone terribly injured limping around trying to get by. The idea is supposed to be that as an orchestra is tuned into the conductor and as a a result of being tuned into the conductor is tuned into one another, likewise, the idea is is that we are tuned into Christ, we are tuned into one another. So that's the first thing, this is for the glory of God and God's plan for the church, which is that we're Christ's body. Shall I swap? So it's this spiritual imagery of us being the body of Christ, that body needs to be healthy. We're supposed to express who Jesus is on the world. Secondly, we're called to be a counterculture. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. The world is a dark place. You are to be a community right in the middle of the world, but shining bright. And so really, again, if you just get beyond uh, the surface, the church looks nice, happy, good music, but underneath it there's factions, division, hostility, immaturity, a lack of commitment to one another, it's not what it it should be with the light of the world, with the salt of the earth. And so just for integrity's sake, fellowship's important. And the final thing is this, Jesus said that when the world sees the way you love one another, it will look up and say, this is the real thing. And very often the world looks at the church and says, seem to be more interested in money, or seem to be more interested, seem to be hypocritical. These are very often the charges laid against the church, sometimes unfounded, sometimes founded. But Jesus said, when they see the way you love one another, interesting, not love them, interesting. When the world, when those on the outside look in and see the way you love one another, they will say, this is it. This is the real thing. These people are truly followers of Christ. So there's three reasons for starters, really, why it's such an important thing. It's going to be very practical today. The Holy Spirit loves us to be practical. He loves us to get to grips with the concrete matters of what fellowship is. It's not just some abstract idea out there, an esoterical thing that you can't quite grip, but it sounds nice and spiritual. No, this is hardcore, concrete stuff as to how we relate to one another. So it's very, very down to earth. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you're thinking this is about the church, the way they fellowship together, what relevance has this for me? Well, I'm imagining that you're here because in some way you have some measure of interest in Jesus or Christianity. And so what I would say is this, is that this will give you an idea of what it will mean to be a Christian, what it will look like, what God is calling his people to be as believers. Now, the way I'm going to do this today is I'm just going to answer questions, not from the floor, but the questions that I've written down, (laughs) questions that, safe questions, no, (laughs) questions that I think perhaps we might ask and think, well, okay, how's this going to work? Some of them theological, some of them very, very practical, but we're going to answer those questions and work through that um, until we get to the end. Okay, are you ready? Question number one. Looking at the Bible, what is the precursor for a united church? What do you need to happen in order for church unity to really happen? You know what you need? The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 is about God's people getting ready for the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is about the Holy Spirit falling on God's people. And then you get what? Devotion. fellowship is supernatural. It's not just come on let's try harder guys to really love each other. Come on let's really really try in 09. It's not so much that that's not your starting point. It's no how what how do we fellowship Holy Spirit? Here's what you need to understand I think charismatic Christians get this really wrong very often. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. He's not just some force that comes and makes you feel warm. He is God. In the same way that you would say, um, your spirit is you or my spirit is me, God's spirit is God. He is a person. He brings the presence of God into us. So if you say you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you indwelt by God, God lives in you. God has certain desires. There are things he loves, there are things he hates. He loves Good relationship, community, fellowship. And so as the Holy Spirit fills you, what you find is if you let the Spirit of God live through you in an unhindered, ungrieved, unquenched way, a desire for fellowship will grow. You want to be around other believers. You want to have good time, quality time with other other believers. There's a supernatural desire for fellowship. It's different to chemistry. Chemistry is that you know you just meet you can meet someone on the bus and you just click. You ever had that? Either in terms of humour, you just click, something happens, and you're on the you on the level s- straight away. That's chemistry. That's wonderful, but it's different from this. It's different from common interest. You can go to or maybe your works do, and you have things in common because you're you living in the same world, you're doing the same things, or you can meet. You can go to a Star Trek convention, and someone else is there too, and you just connect on the Spock thing. It's what it's a common interest, and so it means you can meet somewhere. Okay, that's fine. Common interest is fine. It's different from fellowship. What's fellowship? Fellowship is spirit to spirit connection. It's when you meet with someone and because you're both just loving Jesus... And you're both about this. You just want more of Jesus. And God's doing stuff in your life. And you meet, and you just talk, and you connect. You ever had that before? And it's like, oh. And you say, yeah, God's speaking to me about this. Oh, yeah, me too. And it's like, wow, what's God doing in your life? And there's just that sense of, this is exciting. And you go away built up, encouraged, provoked, stirred up. And you, you walk away thinking, wow, I want to see that person again soon. Because I'm feeling in my spirit that as a result of that conversation there, I'm in a better place. That's fellowship. That's fellowship. It's an exciting, it's a wonderful thing. It's a gift from God. We sometimes call these things, we say, well, I'm a real kindred spirit with that person. That's a good way of describing it. But I would say from a biblical, supernatural, Christ-centered way, it's a kindred spirit because you have the Holy Spirit in you, I have the Holy Spirit in me, and when we meet, bang, something happens. It puts our... Even things like chemistry into the shade and common interest into the shade. Those things are good, but it puts them in... Because they're just temporary. There's something eternal going on here. This is the glory of the church. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace, eager to maintain it. So so it's supernatural, but there's something in you. You say, I want to work at this. Let's get some stuff, time in a diary. Let's arrange to hook up, because I want to meet. I want to strengthen things here. This is the the glory of the church. And the beauty of it is, is that you can find yourself fellowshipping with someone. Actually, in many ways, you've got no shared experience outside of Christ. You're from very different backgrounds, but it just happens. It's fellowship. Praise God for that. Second question, was the early church really as united as we make out? For the first few months, yes, but very, very shortly after this, no. In fact, a lot of the letters to the New Testament are written to combat a partisan spirit, division. Give you some examples. We've got the letter to the Galatians, the problem there was Jew Gentile. 1 Corinthians, the problem there was they were following different Christian leaders. I like Peter, he's better. No, Paul's a better preacher. Well, Paulus is my favourite. And they were getting into that and Paul has to nail them for it. Romans, it was Jew and Gentile and it was the classic veggie carnival. There was tensions around eating habits. Philippians, two individual ladies had fallen out. Read it in Philippians 4. And Paul urges them, good women, co-workers with Paul, laborers for the gospel. But that something had happened, and they had a fallout. And Paul's like, I urge you guys, please be in harmony with one another. It's just an individual thing. Ephesians, Jew and Gentile again. James, rich and poor. You're saying to me, you're saying you guys are out of order. The rich guys come in and you give them a good seat. Poor guys come in and you sit wherever. You, oh, and you just nails for it. Come on, you should be impartial. And so actually the early church struggled with these things just like we do. We need to be real about this. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen to him again in Romans. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Here's the big deal biblically. We're all the same. You see, we tend to highlight our differences, don't we? That's what we tend to do. Um, Even if it's done positively, we're all different. No snowflake is the same. Same with you and me. Now, that's true. That's true. That's the grace of God. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. We're all different. Hallelujah. But biblically, the emphasis is on the fact we're all the same. In what sense? We're all under sin. Some of us are nice sinners. Some of us are nasty sinners. Some of us are posh sinners, some of us are common sinners, but we're sinners, and each of us need to be transferred by his grace out of that realm of sin into the realm of grace. There's no distinction, Paul says you can't because the Jews were terribly proud about their history and God, and they would get this thing about you, but we're the Jews, you know we've got the scriptures and we have Moses and Abraham, and Paul just comes in and says there's no distinction shocking. We're all the same. We're all under sin. And so you could put a first century affluent Jew in the same room as a first century Gentile pauper, there would be no love lost. But you make those two guys both washed in the same blood that flowed from the cross. Both indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. Both reconciled to the same Father suddenly they can fellowship. You see? Suddenly they've got the most fundamental thing in common. They were lost, now they're found. They were blind, now they see. And so the early church wasn't a utopia by a long shot, but the apostles and the writers constantly writing and saying, you've got to deal with this, you've got to work on this, because the whole idea is that God wants a people that are united together. Here's something that's very, very important to understand. The cross deals with the separation between God and mankind, but also deals with the separation between mankind and mankind. It deals with the vertical... The relationship of God and humans deals with the horizontal relationship of human to human. In fact, do you know, every horizontal breakdown is really the result of the vertical breakdown. Every horizontal prejudice is the result of the vertical breakdown, the relationship between God and mankind. And so through the cross, both those things can be dealt with. Now, it's not automatic. You have to work at it. But the cross makes the way. Hallelujah. The Bible says that he made two men into one man. It's a beautiful thing Jesus has done on the cross. A wonderful, wonderful victory. As a result, we can fellowship together. Question number three. So is it wrong for Christians to be friends with those who aren't Christians? Absolutely not. I'll say that again. Because I can so big up fellowship that you can have a kind of a you can have this perception of maybe we maybe we shouldn't be friends with non Christians. Of course you should be friends with people who don't know Jesus. Many of you will have friends you've known since you were that big and you've grown up together. They don't know the Lord, you do, and you're great friends. That's a gift from God. That's a blessing from God. It will do you good emotionally. Those friendships they'll do you good relationally, socially. Hallelujah! But they're not fellowship. That's what I'm saying. It's not fellowship. Have you ever tried speaking to someone who doesn't know the Lord about the Lord? Have you ever tried? And basically it's kind of either just, oh, that's nice. Or embarrassing, or whatever, or even sympathetic. But until you know the Lord, you don't get the Lord. And the Bible says that the natural man can't understand spiritual things. There needs to be that moment of revelation when you're born of God, your spirit comes alive, and then suddenly... It all makes sense. And so please, invest in your friendships with those who don't know the Lord. It's a blessing from God. But invest in relationships with believers also. So all of our friends shouldn't be believers, but we definitely need to invest in Christ-centered friendships. Question number four. What comes first, fellowship or family? This is a good one. It's a two-sided coin. This is a two-sided coin. I think sometimes we create these rigid structures of, this comes first, or that, and then you end up thinking, oh, I don't know if it does now, because you've Created something very, very rigid. I think it's definitely a two-sided coin. Let me just say this is where there's levels of family. Your commitment to your spouse, if you're married, is different from your commitment to your parents, which is different from your commitment to your siblings, which is different from your commitment to your Uncle John in Canada. Yeah, It's different. There are different levels of family, and so you've got to navigate each relationship differently. Let me just say that at the start. But here's the two sides of the coin. First side of the coin, family is a massive deal to God. God loves family. Family is central to the purposes of God. We have a duty to our family. Absolutely, we have a duty and a commitment to our family, without a doubt. I think when, if, if God was to move in this nation and bring a sense of a revival of Christianity, one of the fruits of that would be a, a strengthening and a reuniting of families. If that didn't happen, you'd have to question, is this authentic? A reconciliation between husband and wife. family breakdown, reconciliation coming through the cross. Marriage is restored. I mean, that's just got to happen in the move of God because God loves family. The Bible is clear that the state uh, and schools and education are not the primary um, uh, agent of nurture for a child. It's the parents. It's the parents. Parents must never give away that responsibility to the state. Or, no, it's the parents. Family is a massive deal in God's sight. And I, sometimes I would say this: believers dishonor families in the name of commitment to the church. Sometimes they do that in the name of, oh, I'm committed to my church. They dishonor their families. If your family always gets last helpings, then you'd have to question, I think, whether you're dishonoring them slightly. Whether it's always church first, family, I think I would question. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's a sense of the strength of feeling God has for commitment to family. Second side of the coin. Listen to Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Some people say, the Bible's full of contradictions. At a moment like this, you may be tempted to think, this is one of them. No, it's not. Here's how it works. Sometimes, family members do not release us to serve the Lord. At that point, they must be graciously resisted. I'll say that again. Sometimes, family members do not actually release us to follow the calling of God in our lives. At that point, we need to graciously resist them. And even if it ends up with them saying, you hate me. You don't hate them, but in a sense, this is what Jesus is talking about here. It could be with a, I don't know, it could be a spouse, even a believing spouse, insecure. Feels insecure about their husband or wife's involvement in the church or maybe they've found their niche in the church and they haven't and they begin to manipulate and say, oh, you know, I don't know, say things that kind of make the person feel bad for being involved in a church or begin to, begin to just pull things in a bit emotionally so it makes it hard for that person to really run. That needs to be addressed and resisted, not submitted to. That's bad. That's manipulation. could be parents trying to exert authority. If you're a minor, you obey your parents. If you're a major, or whatever the word is, the opposite of that, You're to always honour your parents, but you're no longer obliged to obey them. So if you're no longer a minor, but your parents are exerting uh, a sense of influence because maybe they're concerned about you and you getting into this Christianity stuff, or maybe they're Christians, but they just, I don't know, who knows, but they're just not liking you following the Lord, or maybe the Lord has called you to another nation. They're saying, how can you do this to us? How can you leave us? And you need to graciously, lovingly consider what they're saying, but not necessarily... Submit to it, even if it creates emotional difficulty. So be considerate, but not manipulated. Jesus is your first love. And sometimes Jesus says this, you need to hate your wife for the gospel's sake. Sometimes Jesus says this, don't go to church today, your wife's ill, look after her. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not the church, the family, it's Jesus jesus and he says that and he says that so you need to understand what are you saying in this situation lord you need wisdom to be led by the holy spirit it's very important if you've got any other first love in your life it's idolatry okay every good relationship in your life comes from him he's the source okay so you enjoy it but your main affection is for him always Question number five, is it okay if all my Christian friends are in other churches? It's a great thing to have other Christian friends in other churches, denominations, etc. If you find yourself in a church that says otherwise, you're in a cult. (laughs) One of the marks of a cult is to try to stop you from relating to other believers in other settings because they get scared by it. It's a great thing to have other believing friends elsewhere. What I would say is this, though. I think it's good to have at least two, at least two good friends that you really connect with in your local church. Because that means that you are meaningfully connected to your church relationally. It's not just somewhere you attend. Or go and serve there. No, there's a meaningful relational connection. Why more than one? Why two? Why two minimum? Because if it's, more, if it's just one, really, you're just connected to that person. If they move on, you're scuppered. Yeah? Well, if they have a wobble or whatever, then what do you do? To be connected to the church, it means a breadth of relationships. Two minimum. Some would be two hundred. You know, some people are like, they just make friends wherever they go. But I would say try and try and keep a slight breadth to it because that helps you to get a, a broader fellowship in your local church. Question number six. Don't worry, there's not twenty. <laughs> Question number six. Are meetings a valid expression of fellowship or should it be more organic and natural? Is this really fellowship? Surely we should just be around one another's homes spontaneously. That's real fellowship. Let's look at this. Church means called out people. That's the, what the word means. And it's used regarding an assembly or a gathering. It could be big or could be small. Now who's heard of Liquid Church? Wave your hand in the air if you have It helps me. Who's heard of Liquid Church? Oh my goodness! It's funny. We never often bring up these terms. It's very few people have, have heard of stuff. I don't know whether you don't read loads or where we don't. Expi- oh, no, no, no. I mean, in terms of churchy. Sorry, I'm getting myself in a hole here. Th- this made a massive impact about five years ago. Maybe you're all new Christians. Who's heard of uh, this? is Probably even less likely. Who's heard of um, deconstructionism? It's the same th- within the church. Okay, within the church, it's the same thing. Okay. Here's the thinking. About five, maybe seven years ago, a group of Christians said this. This isn't church. Let's get back to the Bible. They're around one another's homes, eating food. That's church. Let's stop this. Okay? So a lot of them stopped meeting like this and they said, well, when we bump into each other in the supermarket, that's church. Um, come around mine and we'll have a meal and we'll break bread. That's church. I we'll start a football team together. That's church. That's, that's, that, and we won't do this thing and particularly one UK new church movement really bought into this, oh yeah, we're going to go for this, Uh, the result being that that movement has completely collapsed, pretty much. Now why? Because actually, in the Bible, yeah, some of their argument is right, but most errors contain a kernel or at least some truth. If you read your Bible, here's what you'll also find, that there was the small and there was the big. There was the spontaneous, and there was the organised. It wasn't institutionalised, but it was organised. It wasn't ad hoc, but it was informal. And you can just read that, and you see, you've got to have both things together. This is God's wisdom. You want biblical church, you have the large and the small. You have the stuff in the homes, and you have the gatherings. In Acts, it was the temple. We read it in the passage today. The temple... They were committed to that. We'll go there. We'll pray. We'll listen to the public reading of Scripture. We'll use spiritual gifts, build each other up, and then the home. We'll break bread together. We'll fellowship. We'll pray for one another. That's the the model. Biblically, that's what we have. That's what your ecclesiology, your study of the church, that's what what comes through when you study that in the Bible. And so, you also find when Paul would go places and plant churches, one of his priorities would be establish elders, get leaders to govern, because these were people that were going somewhere. Not just a group of ragtag, ad hoc, yeah, we'll hang out and break bread. That's part of it. But we're going somewhere. We gather to be equipped and envision this is where we're going again. So you get these two things working together. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews. He was was, um, challenging a bit of liquid church that was going on, and he says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Now the Greek there for meeting together refers to complete collection. Not just one or two in a home talking about a complete collection. So we encourage the small, fluid stuff, absolutely. Gather together for accountability, trips to the cinema, quiz nights, baby showers, lunch in the city, and all of that. But we place a high priority on gathering as well. Value these gatherings on a Sunday morning. Value them. In what ways can you value them? Three ways. Number one, just hold them dear in your heart. Hold it dear. Those of say, oh, that again, yeah, I better get up for that. No, hold it dear. This is precious. This is God's plan for these people to gather together. It's God's plan for his people to, to, to be in a big setting and be encouraged and inspired and envisioned. It's God's plan. It's what he wants for us. So just hold it dearly in your heart. Secondly, do your best. Do your best in terms of being here on time. We'll just say that I was joking with, with it uh, about it with someone over tea and coffee earlier this morning. we were joking about it. so i 'm going to give a little prod this morning just to because I imagine most of you get to work on time, and I guess i 'm just assuming that your motives for that are because you want to worship God in your work, not because you 'll get sacked if you 're late and um, and so I guess what i 'm saying is is that <laughs> no one 's going to sack you here, so let your motives. <laughs> because you want to get here on time. The third thing is this, serve. You might say, but I'm not on the road, sir. I'm I'm not down this morning. No, 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 no. Come to serve anyway. You see, you might think, well, what do I mean, come to serve? I don't want to just jump on the tea and coffee. People are doing it. No, the Bible says, why do we gather? We gather to encourage one another, build one another up. We prophesy to build one another up. We're to pray for one another. That's, that's, that's how we're to be. We're to come here looking, how, what can I bring today? You might be sitting there thinking, God, who, who should I pray for today? Who can I speak a word of encouragement to? That's the attitude we should come here. We're coming to give, coming to serve. When you come with that attitude, you know what? You receive so much. You, rece- you just receive so much. The Bible says, give and it will be given to you. When you come looking to serve others and build others up and give of who you are, you just re- you receive back relationships. You re- if you're struggling to find your way into the church, let me encourage you, come and give. Offer to pray for someone after the service. You'll get to know them. Give, and it'll be given to you. Penultimate question. Won't we lose real community if we keep on growing? I've had people come up to me and say, I love this church and I want to join it. I say, why? I say, because it's small. I say, oh. That's nice. But <laughs> it might not be small one day. Then what? I hope you don't go then. What's the way forward here? See, I don't believe God's spoken to me about we're going to be this size or that size. I don't feel I've, I've heard Him say that, so, you know, I don't. However, we are to be entirely shaped by mission, and mission is about reaching more people. So if we're successful in our mission, we're going to grow. We're going to grow. Now, whether that results in a big church or lots of little churches that we plant out, I don't know. But what it will result in is change, turnover. There will be change, there will be turnover, and, and uh, that can be frightening, that can be uncomfortable. But I think it's better than stagnating, don't you? <laughs> I think it's the better option than just staying where we are. And you know, on February the first, two thousand and nine, we start our evening service. Now, for a while, many of us will be at both services. Those of us that are helping will be at both. But you know, from February '09 there will be people who start coming to the evening service who have never been to a morning service. There will be people who are part of Revelation Church who have got no idea what happens in the morning. And there will be those of you that come in the morning that don't go in the evening. You'll have no idea. These are the people that have joined in the evening. And that is probably just going to continue and multiply as the years go on. I don't want to just prepare you for that and just say it takes emotional maturity to be able to walk through that and to cope with that. But I think we can maintain fellowship and community. I think that's one of the reasons why we do our 10s, just to make sure there's stuff going on there. And also, we inc- we, we've got some thoughts and some plans for 2009. I haven't got time to go into it today, but the family meeting on the 13th of Jan, we'll, we'll really try to flesh that out. And those of you that can't make that, we'll send it by email or something. But we've got some plans just to make sure we remain strong in the Word and strong in fellowship as we push on in 2009. Final question, what are the main hindrances to true fellowship? What are the main things that really stop it? Number one, spiritual coldness. If you are cold spiritually, you will struggle with fellowship. Remember, the true fellowship is the Holy Spirit welling up in you, desiring to connect with someone else who's loving Jesus. If you're cold in the spirit, it will affect your relationships with other believers. It flows from Christ. So what do we do? Well, listen to Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. If there's spiritual coldness in your life, you just think, man, I'm just tepid. You know, I'm freezing or whatever. I need help. Speak to your tens leaders. Speak to me. We'll help you. We'll give you wisdom as to how to lay aside those weights so you can really run and really get hot for God. God's a consuming fire. He wants us to be hot like him. And as we let the spirit dwell in us, he will bring that heat to us. Another thing is schisms in relationships. That is a real hindrance to true fellowship. Mistrust, suspicion, fallouts, niggles, unresolved quarrels, etc. Bad news. The church is described in the Bible as living stones being built together to make a house for God. And what are they glued together by? Love. Satan loves to attack relationships in the church. He loves to destroy fellowship. If someone has wronged you in the church, what do you do? What should you do? Go and speak to them. Go and speak to them. Don't go and speak to someone else about them. I'll say that again. (laughs) Don't go and speak to someone else about them. Speak to them. You might think, well, I think they've wronged me, but I'm not sure. I don't know what to do. I need some wisdom. Okay, go and speak to one really wise, objective, mature person for counsel. But don't start doing that thing where you start sharing it with other people for prayer. For prayer. Let me just tell you what happened. It's not prayer. It's gossip. Gossip destroys the body of Christ. Destroys the body of Christ. We mustn't give room to any kind of gossip in the church. Totally wrong. Okay, you go and speak to the person. Don't don't say, well, I would do, but I know what they're like. They're not going to respond well. That's their issue. Your issue is do what the Bible says. Speak to them. What if they don't respond well? Take one other along with you. Say, look, you've sinned against me and take a witness. Say, seriously, yeah, seriously. Say, a bit, it's making a bit of a big deal, isn't it? It is a big deal. If your relationships are out of kilter in the church, it's a massive deal. But then what if they don't respond then? You take it to the church. <gasps> seriously? Yeah, seriously. And what if they don't respond then? Then we ask them to leave the church. you can't the church is the people it's God's people if someone is someone's sinning against other members of the congregation and they're not willing to apologise and put it right they're just not willing to then you need to discipline them and say look you need to put you out of the fellowship until you're willing to repent that's what the Bible says we need to do that is how you maintain unity in the church it's always the last resort. no one ever wants to do it but that's what we do what if someone in the church just bugs you they haven't sinned against you but they just really bug you you just think this person really winds me up yeah you just think oh what do you do you love them (laughs) (laughs) you serve them you include them that's what you do you don't go telling them how much they bug you they can't (laughs) repent of that it's just them you can't say you know you're really annoying the bible says I should tell you no it doesn't but if your brother sins against you, you tell them, okay? Yeah? Because you, you say, when you said this, that really hurt me. Or when you, yeah? You're t- Don't just say, you know, you're really annoying. What can I do with that? I mean, imagine that was you. Go, what can you do with that? It's just going to really ruin your life. Don't do that. You love them, all right? And you serve them. I mean, you just acknowledge God and His wisdom has put them in the same church as me. I'm going to learn to love through this I'm going to learn to become more like Jesus through this include them don't give them the cold shoulder don't look down at them don't do any of that it's terrible because if you start doing that then they're going to need to come to you to nail you for your sin what if you you just think there's something not right about that person they're freaking me out what then that could be the Holy Spirit some people are particularly discerning at spotting wolves. Could be you've spotted a wolf. If you've spotted someone who's coming, they're just, you just, nah, something in you goes, Some people are just very, this is a gift from God. Do not confuse being discerning with being unloving. Go and speak to your Tens leader about them. If it is your Tens leader, speak to me. <laughs> 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 but, you know, you, you've got to speak to someone about that and just say, look, that person freaks me out. Something about them. Need to know. Because seriously, you, you get Satan sends people to churches. Paedophiles, blah blah blah, sends them. They can't be including them if they're unrepentant. If they're repentant, of course, it's fine. Include them and you watch over them closely and you make sure there's accountability there. But if they're unrepentant, you need to protect your kids. Final thing, fear. Some people are just afraid of connecting in a meaningful way with other people in the church. Bad experience they've had, or something they just think, ah. some people wear what I call rejection glasses. It's like this they, they, they don't even realize they've got them on. The glasses are terrible. You've got glasses on, you can't see the glasses, you just see through them. So you've got rejection glasses on, it's kind of like you just feel like you're not in the inner circle. Some of you. That's your assumption. Oh, I'm, never, I'm just not quite in here. And you assume everyone else is always meeting together and doing great things and never invite me. With the glasses. You probably all, we probably all struggle with it now and then, but some of us particularly, it's your thing. That's what you're like. You just assume it. You assume you're on the outside. And then guess where you end up? On the outside. It's a curse, isn't it, really? You need, to, you need a mixture of repentance and support. So repentance in terms of saying, actually, this is a totally wrong way of thinking. Based on I don't know where I picked it up, but I've got to just remove these. But I need help because I want people to help me through this because I feel a bit vulnerable, you know, finding my way in terms of relationships. Got to nail that one. Bible says perfect love casts out fear. So part of maturing is that God's perfect love casts that fear out, so we're able to connect with people and get friendships in the church. Well, here we are. Now, all of today's stuff is really the nuts and bolts of Supernatural Fellowship. It's supernatural, but it's very, very concrete. We're not called to a weird, mystical, out-of-body spiritual existence of song, singing, and transcendent floating around. That is not the Christian life. We are called to be fully human and work things out as Jesus taught us to, um, and that is how we follow God. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, Jesus lived a fully human life by the power of the Spirit. We're called to do the same. So it's concrete and it's measured and we we, we work it out. Please do not leave. If you've been convicted of something this morning, please do not leave here saying that was a real blessing. It will be a blessing if you apply it. Then it becomes a blessing. If there's someone you need to confront lovingly because they've sinned against you, please do it before you leave today, if they're in the room. Please do it. If there's someone that's been bugging you, you just need to love them. Look for an opportunity to serve them as soon as you can. Let's just look to apply these things and we will grow as God wanted us to. But as we do these things, we can be sure of three things. God will be glorified, people will be loved in the church, and the sleeping world will be awakened. That's the real thing. So the stakes are very high. So I want to urge you to give yourselves to that. Okay? Is that alright? We're going to get back to praising, singing. Many many of you want to probably dance really, really quickly because you're so cold. Uh, (laughs) So maybe we could have a fast one. I don't know, but... (laughs) We're going to do bread and wine. I'm so sorry about this. We were, I'm looking to get the heat and for next week, honestly. I really am. I'll make the right phone calls and be graciously strong on the phone. But we're going, to, we're going to do bread and wine now. I just want to say this. The reason we do this is Jesus said, Whenever you gather together, break the bread in remembrance of my body broken for you and drink this wine in remembrance of my blood spilt for you. And uh, really, it's just a very tangible and vivid way of coming back to the cross And remembering what God has done for us. Wonderful, isn't it? All he's done for us is grace. If you're not a believer, I would say two things to you. Either just don't come to the front to take the bread and the wine. Or if you want to give your life to Christ, then come to the front and take the bread and wine. And let that be your way of saying, Jesus, I want to follow you for the rest of my life. I want to be a disciple. Um, Basically, in a nutshell, what this represents is that Christ's broken body and spilt blood has accomplished everything for our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God and all of this comes as a gift and getting saved is not a work it's not something you do by praying more reading your bible more Jesus has done it he said it's finished on the cross we just fully trust and put our faith in him and it's an expression of our faith when we take the bread and the wine so if the band would like to come up and uh, just feel free at any point during this song or the next song to come and take bread and wine as and when thanks very much